This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Out of the Blue podcast. Today's podcast is about sleep disordered breathing. My name is John Fleetham and I'm a physician and clinical scientist in the Division of Respiratory Medicine at the University of British Columbia, Vancouver, Canada, where I'm a professor of medicine. This year we're celebrating 100 years of the Blue Journal and to recognize this anniversary, it's publishing a series of editorials. With us today are Dr. Najib Ayas and Dr. Rakesh Bhattacharya, who are the authors of the recent editorial, Sleep Disordered Breathing, Still the New Kid on the Block. Najib Ayaz is the Head of Critical Care Medicine at the University of British Columbia, where he's the Associate Professor of Medicine. Rakesh Bhattacharya is the Director of the Pediatric Sleep Medicine Program at the Rady Children's Hospital in San Diego, California, and he's an Associate Professor of Pediatrics at the University of California in San Diego. Najib, can we start off with you? explaining the different types of sleep disordered breathing. Thank you very much, Dr. Fleetham, for inviting me on this podcast. When we say sleep disordered breathing, that obviously encompasses a variety of different disorders. By far the most common type of sleep disordered breathing is obstructive sleep apnea. Uh, This is characterized by recurrent uh, obstruction of the upper airway during sleep, resulting in arousals and sleep fragmentation. However, uh, there are many other different kinds of sleep apnea that we need to be aware of as well. Probably the major other category is central sleep apnea, and this is characterized by a reduction in respiratory drive. There are many subtypes of central sleep apnea associated with narcotics or with um, heart failure, such as Chain-Stokes respiration. In addition, patients with neuromuscular disease can also suffer from central sleep apnea as well. Another type of sleep apnea that's being increasingly recognized as uh, being very dangerous is obesity hypoventilation uh, syndrome. This occurs when there's usually sleep disordered breathing at night uh, of the obstructive kind together with daytime hypercapnia. Now in the editorial, uh, we mostly uh, focused on obstructive sleep apnea as this is the most common uh, disease and largely because of space constraints, we weren't able to discuss a lot of the uh, central disorders or obesity hypoventilation, even though there have been substantial advances in these two diseases as well. Rakesh? How does sleep disorder breathing vary between adults and children? Okay, uh, so thank you kindly for the invitation, Dr. Fleetham. So, you know, the etiology of sleep disorder breathing in children, particularly young children, is in fact quite different from what we've seen from from evidence from adults. And this is predominantly the the reason is related to enlarged adenotonsillar tissue. Uh, That being said, the surge in the prevalence of obesity in children, similar to what we've observed in adults, has led to uh, uh, um, a, a sort of uh, merge of the two entities in, in that uh, obesity um, or obese children present in similar fashion to how we see in adults. One thing that's quite striking that we've learned from kids is that their susceptibility to sleep disorder breathing is quite different. Uh, children due to a smaller stature have more limited pulmonary capacity. So if you imagine that any any perturbations in in respiration during sleep may have significant consequences, and and the net result of that is that we have a a lower threshold for, in fact, treating kids with sleep disorder breathing. Uh, The presentation of sleep disorder breathing can be quite different. Uh, Children, again, particularly younger children, often do not present with daytime sleepiness that we so often see in adults. 
In fact, many children with obstructive sleep apnea instead present with hyperactivity, irritability, and seem to be uh, on an overdrive as opposed to being uh, somnolent. Um, these symptoms do in fact change as kids get older and it does shed light on the difficulties with diagnosing sleep disorder breathing based on history alone in the pediatric population. And I think finally that the biggest difference that we see with kids versus adults is that treatment is often very different. Since the, the, the major contributor to sleep apnea in kids is related to enlarged adenoids and tonsils, the approach for treatment is mostly surgical. Um, with the obesity endemic, again, you see that merge with what we find in adults that we're seeing a lot more obese kids, however, relying on positive airway pressure being their mainstay for treatment. Rakesh, what in your opinion are the most important developments in pediatric sleep disordered breathing over the past 50 years? Well, if you consider the seminal paper by Christian Gimeno published in 1976 in which he detailed eight children um, with obstructive sleep apnea, that one can imagine that the whole notion of pediatric sleep disorder breathing is really at its stage of infancy. Um, if I discuss obstructive sleep apnea alone, um, since that, that initial paper, uh, our understanding of sleep disorder breathing in, in children has really taken off with our understanding of the several comorbidities that are associated with, with uh, obstructive sleep apnea. The earliest descriptions of pediatric obstructive sleep apnea uh, were confirmed by several elegant studies by, by David Lazal, Ron Cherubin, and others that have shown that obstructive sleep apnea in, in children results in cognitive dysfunction and poor school performance. And, and there seems to be a subset of children who have robust improvements in school performance following treatment of obstructive sleep apnea, shedding light to how significant of a burden sleep disorder breathing can in fact be to normal child growth and development. Uh, more recently, and, and sort of taken off hand-in-hand hand with what uh, studies have come from the adult literature, is that sleep apnea in children is also um, associated with cardiovascular disease, including endothelial dysfunction, systemic hypertension, and cardiac ventricular remodeling. I, I think one of the unique considerations uh, of sleep disorder breathing that we have witnessed through the arena of pediatric research is we've begun to understand that disturbances of normal sleep, including sleep disorder breathing, can, ha can have on growth in, of children. Certainly one would speculate that these disturbances during a critical period of growth and, and could result in, in, in aberrations that could lead to, to disease later in life. And, and a lot of that has been sort of looking at the long-term um, consequences of untreated sleep disorder breathing. So Najib, same question. Um, what are the most important developments in adult sleep disorder breathing over the last 50 years? You know, when I was preparing this editorial with uh, Rakesh and, and Dr. Alan Pack, what I was really struck with is how far we've come in the last 50 years. Uh, we have to remember that uh, especially obstructive sleep apnea was only um, really described as a disease in the 1960s, and CPAP has only been present till, since about the 1980s. Since that then, I think we've made remarkable progress. Just to use uh, obstructive sleep apnea as, as an illustrative example of the sleep disorder field in general, uh, we've made significant progress in terms of, let's say, the epidemiology of disease. I think probably one of the most important papers that uh, came out that really cemented obstructive sleep apnea as a very important public health uh, issue was that paper by uh, Terry Young in the New England Journal in uh, 1993. And at that time, what they showed was sleep apnea was not only prevalent, but was underdiagnosed. Since that, I think there have been substantial epidemiologic studies that have shown the uh, relationship between sleep disorder breathing and a variety of health and safety consequences, including cardiovascular disease, cerebrovascular disease, heart failure, um, and safety outcomes such as occupational injuries and uh, motor vehicle crashes. 
from a translational biology perspective, I think that the animal studies of sleep apnea have given us uh, many insights into the pathophysiology of the cardiometabolic complications of sleep disordered breathing. The animal studies have also helped us to understand the neuroanatomic as well as the neurochemical control of breathing that will hopefully uh, be translated into pharmacologic therapies for sleep disordered breathing in the future. I think we've also made substantial progress in terms of clinical trials in terms of sleep disordered breathing. One of the first clinical trials only had about 100 patients that was published in the Lancet. However, the most recent large-scale clinical trial, which was the SAVE study, had over 2,700 patients, which really shows you how far the field has uh, progressed uh, just in the last uh, few decades. In terms of a health services standpoint, I think that what's being uh, very evident is that given the high prevalence of sleep apnea and the increasing prevalence with the higher rates of obesity, that as physicians and, and as the health system, we really need to come to grips about how we're going to deal with these uh, patients. And I think there have been some very good work in terms of looking at alternate methods of uh, diagnosing and treating these patients using novel forms of technology such as telemedicine, ambulatory diagnosis, um, uh, alternate care providers, or using family physicians or other primary care providers in terms of the care algorithm for sleep disorder breathing um, as well. And Najib, there is some animal models which you just mentioned and about sleep apnea. How have they advanced our understanding of sleep disordered breathing? Well, I think one of the problems you get into with uh, obstructive sleep apnea, especially, uh, especially with respect to interpreting some of the observational data, is the issue of confounding. The issue with patients with obstructive sleep apnea is that many of them have other confounding diseases such as diabetes or obesity or hypertension. And this, to a certain extent, uh, may make it difficult to understand exactly what the impact is of hypoxemia at night or the sleep apnea on long-term health complications. One of the advantages that you have, let's say, with an intermittent hypoxia model of animals is that you can take the confounding out of the equation and really focus on the cardiometabolic complications of the intermittent hypoxia. I think that the other place that animal studies have been very useful is really delineating some of the neurochemical and the uh, neuroanatomic uh, basis of control of breathing and sleep disorder breathing uh, as well. And I think that those would be the two major areas that I think that the um, animal studies have really helped us. Rakesh, there's, there's much current interest in biomarkers. How may they help us understand the pathophysiology of sleep disordered breathing? Well, I, I think with the the, the sort of long follow-up of, of, of children and adults with sleep apnea, we've become, began to understand that, that this is a disease that is related to significant amounts of, of comorbidities and, and a lot of real end-organ injury. And so when we look at the utility of biomarkers, what we're really trying to do is capture that notion that, that some patients that suffer from sleep apnea have end-organ morbidity. And so... Our understanding of sleep disorder breathing is we relied so heavily on on the utility of sleep studies in terms of at least diagnosis. And I think one of the important thing potential for biomarkers is that may, they certainly aid to our understanding of how severe the disease is and give us a sense of risk stratification. The other thing about biomarkers, which I find very compelling, um, is that the reality is the global availability of, of sleep studies is quite limited. And so if we can use biomarkers uh, in, a, in the diagnostic arena to help us in terms of identifying those patients that are susceptible and maybe perhaps guide us in terms of how quickly we should treat these patients, I think biomarkers may serve a very important role in the um, clinical management of sleep apnea. 
And, and that being said, as we start to do um, look and fish for more biomarkers, I think it also gives us more evidence of, of what aspect of end-organ morbidity is, is, is significant, in, 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 particularly in patients who are actually susceptible to disease. Well, Najib, there's been recent research assessing the different phenotypes of obstructive sleep apnea. What are the different phenotypes and how may they uh, help us uh, understand how to direct care? Well, I think that from the physiologic standpoint, I think it's becoming evident that patients can get to sleep apnea in many different ways. So an individual with an apnea hypopnea index of 30 events per hour, all of them are not uh, equivalent. And I think that some great work in terms of the human physiology is showing that there may be different underlying uh, endotypes or different physiologic pathways by which these individuals may get to the phenotype of obstructive sleep apnea. Uh, I think that some individuals, for instance, it may be more of an anatomical issue where their airway is very uh, collapsible, sometimes because of you know, severe obesity or, or other structural abnormalities. In other individuals, it may be an issue of not enough activation of the genius glossus muscle during sleep, which may cause this. Other individuals may have problems in terms of how they deal with arousals from sleep and the instability of breathing associated with that as well. Uh, I think that this area is very exciting, uh, but some of it is quite preliminary. I, I don't know if it's ready yet for prime time, but hopefully with more uh, refinement of these endotypes, we can actually use these endotypes to actually uh, pinpoint uh, precision medicine techniques to, to treat patients with sleep apnea. So for instance, in an individual with predominantly an, an, an anatomical issue, the treatment in that person may be very different compared to someone who's got problems with arousal threshold or individuals with, um, with poor gene and glosses activation. So I think that that's a very exciting field. The other thing to think about in terms of phenotypes as well is that there are certain individuals who suffer the consequences of sleep apnea and some who don't. Uh, across the board, obviously, patients who are adults who have severe obstructive sleep apnea are at increased risk of cardiovascular disease and cerebrovascular disease. However, the reality is that most patients actually will not suffer one of these events. And I think that one of the things that we need to think about in terms of phenotyping is risk stratification. Getting back to what Rakesh just talked about in terms of using biomarkers to risk stratify patients, I think that that's going to be useful in adults as well. And I think that using these types of biomarkers to try to figure out who uh, which individuals will ha will be at high risk of a future stroke, let's say, or heart attack, or sleepiness, or these other things, I think will be very important as well. And I think that there's been some good uh, preliminary data in this field, but I think that as a field, we really need to embrace some of these omic type of technologies in terms of genomics and transcriptomics and metabolomics, just to see if we can get a very good biomarkers to really help to risk stratify patients. Now, you mentioned several recent clinical trials in your editorial. Uh, can you summarize the most important findings and their relevance to patient care? Uh, Rakesh, do you want to go first? Well, I, I think I'm a little bit uh, jealous of Najib because he certainly has at his repertoire a lot of clinical trials in, in adult sleep medicine. Us in the pediatric arena, we really have very few um, uh, 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 large-based clinical trials. And more recently, the, the elegant uh, CHAT study was a multi-center randomized control trial where they actually looked at um, how treatment in the form of adenotonsillectomy, whether it actually resulted in any significant improvements in their primary outcome, which was uh, neurocognitive function. They're, they're, they're using objective uh, criteria such as the NEPSI and the DAS scales. The, 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 the authors did not find significant improvements uh, if you compared early adenotonsillectomy to, um, versus a conservative watchful waiting group. 
Um, they did, however, find significant improvements in many behavioral indices following um, adenotontolectomy. And while the results might suggest some disappointment, um, this was predominantly a more milder phenotype of kids that had sleep apnea, given the challenges of randomization. But notwithstanding, um, the, the study actually gave us the first ability to look at treatment from the perspective of actually randomizing children with sleep apnea. To date, most studies have been prospective trials, and we've never really had the elegance of a lot of the adult studies in where we can actually randomize treatment. Uh, the CHAT study certainly opens the, the door to more randomized studies. Um, given the challenges of getting randomized studies in, in, in children, um, there certainly needs to be uh, a push uh, for pediatric researchers to, to further address these questions. Yeah, thanks. Uh, actually, Rakesh, I'm kind of jealous of you because you live in San, sunny San Diego, which is kind of nice. <laughs> but in terms of uh, clinical trials, in terms of adult sleep apnea, I think that the two uh, largest trials that have really um, uh, changed the way we view sleep apnea are probably the SURVE-HDEF trial and the SAFE study that have been published in the last uh, couple of years. So first, the SAFE study was a large study that was uh, directed by, by Doug McAvoy in Australia. And basically what they did was they randomized over 2,700 patients um, with uh, sleep apnea to either CPAP or no treatment and followed them for the occurrence of cardiovascular disease. So these were individuals with pre-existing disease and therefore would be at high risk of a secondary outcome. And basically what they found was that in the intention to treat analysis, there was no real difference in terms of the uh, outcomes in these two groups of patients in terms of cardiovascular mortality. There was some improvements in terms of sleepiness and uh, some work productivity measurements, which I think are important and do, again, show that sleep apnea treatment does have significant potential quality of life benefits. The thing that was interesting about that study, though, is that it was, it was basically a very real-world study, and the compliance of CPAP in that study was less than four hours. And in those individuals who were compliant with CPAP, overall, they did seem to do better than those that were not compliant, especially with respect to some of the cerebrovascular outcomes. Now, this is very consistent with some of the other randomized studies, which in general have shown that individuals who are compliant with CPAP tend to do better than those that don't. In terms of the interpretation of the trial, I guess you can interpret it in, in various ways. Um, my feeling is that probably the dose of CPAP was not adequate to reduce a lot of these complications of sleep apnea and that maybe we need to have measures to either improve CPAP or to find other ways to uh, deal with the uh, sleep apnea physiology um, as well. Obviously, the other possibility is that uh, perhaps the sleep apnea doesn't cause um, a cardiovascular disease per se. I think that this seems much less likely to me given the preponderance of the animal data and the epidemiologic data that have shown consistent associations between um, sleep apnea as well as these uh, outcomes. In terms of the SURVE-HF trial, that was a large study geared for patients with uh, central sleep apnea in patients with um, um, congestive heart failure, especially in those individuals with a reduced ejection fraction. Somewhat surprisingly, those individuals who got adaptive servoventilation in that trial actually suffered an increase in cardiovascular and all-cause uh, mortality. I think the reason for this is somewhat unclear and obviously needs to be delineated a little bit further. There's some indication that perhaps those patients may have had more arrhythmic deaths, perhaps due to metabolic abnormalities such as hypokalemia or hypocapnia or those things, but I think that this is an important area that needs to be looked at. I don't think that that's a final um, 
conclusion about what to do with these types of patients. Uh, I think that the ADVENT trial, which uh, Doug Bradley is uh, conducting in, uh, in Canada, will help to kind of determine better how to deal with these patients with sleep disorder, breathing, and heart failure. Although at this point, obviously, it would be um, uh, it probably would not be recommended to pit, put patients with a reduced ejection fraction on uh, adaptive servo ventilation. So I think that the fact, in terms of the field, the fact that we can accomplish such large multicenter trials in this field, I think is a very, very big uh, plus for us uh, going forward. And I'm sure that there will be other uh, large trials in the future that will help to um, I'll help us to better understand how to manage our patients. Okay. Now, finally, can you both outline briefly? what you feel are the most important priorities for sleep disordered breathing research uh, over the next 10 years. And Najib, can we start with you? I think that um, in terms of the field, there's really an explosion of the scientific data that's in the field, and this runs the gamut from translational biology up until health services research. And to a certain I think, extent, I think all these are important given how common, uh, let's say, obstructive sleep apnea is. If I had to put uh, you know, various ideas out there, I think that one thing we need to understand is a better understanding of the pathophysiologic mechanisms of sleep disordered breathing, especially in terms of, of better defining the underlying neurochemistry as well as neuroanatomy. My hope is that that will eventually get us to better pharmacotherapy for sleep apnea, which I think is, uh, is really needed because I think that we do need other alternatives other than CPAP therapy. The second thing is that I think that some of the um, uh, translational animal work will help us to better understand the links between sleep apnea and intermittent hypoxia and cardiometabolic disease. Um, again, hopefully by elucidating these mechanisms, this will lead to eventually new treatments for um, uh, some of these outcomes as well. From the standpoint of epidemiology, I, I think that uh, again, using standard epidemiologic techniques together with some of the omic technologies, I think will be important in the future, using large multi-center uh, databases uh, and to leverage off other databases in this area. I think that we're really going towards this, and I'm hoping that in the next 10 years, this will be a very active area study as well. I think that this may also help us to identify various biomarkers, not only for diagnosis of sleep apnea, but also to risk stratify patients with sleep apnea uh, as well. The other thing that I think that we need to deal with as a field is what's the best way to manage patients with sleep apnea. Uh, for instance, we kind of have to have a better understanding of how to integrate these newer technologies such as ambulatory studies and telemedicine, alternate care providers, primary care physicians to try to figure out what to do with these deluge of patients that are out there and are basically undiagnosed at this time, especially given that we know that treatment of sleep apnea is a very cost-effective use of healthcare uh, resources. Also, I think that there are certain popula populations of individuals that we need to get a better understanding of what the impact is of sleep and sleep apnea. I think that these would include uh, pregnant women in terms of looking at pregnancy outcomes as well as fetal outcomes, looking at the impact of sleep and sleep apnea on long-term cognitive uh, complications, especially in terms of Alzheimer's disease and dementia, and also the impact of sleep apnea and how to manage patients with sleep apnea in the perioperative setting. I think that from a health services standpoint is a very important area as well. I know that there's active work in all these areas, and I'm really looking forward to seeing what comes out in the next five or 10 years. Rakesh, you have the last word. Well, I mean, there's not much more that I can add from what Najib so elegantly just stated. Um, I, I think a couple of additions that, that I would like to, 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 to discuss is, I mean, in, in this podcast, we've already implied how prevalent of a disease this is, and this has vast societal implications. And I hope one of the priorities that we see in sleep disorder breathing research is 
that we increase the, the opportunities for sleep research, including funding uh, opportunities, and also including uh, um, more folks to actually get into this field because there are, in fact, a lot of questions that, that are still there and there are a lot of ways that we can Im improve not only our understanding of sleep and sleep disorder breathing, uh, but also how we treat it. You know, one of the things that, uh, that, that interests me a lot is this notion of genome-wide association studies where we could perhaps at some point un predict those patients that actually will be at risk for developing sleep apnea, but even further, predicting those patients who are in fact um, susceptible to disease. And one of the struggles that I've always had in the field of sleep is we so re heavily rely on sleep studies and we kind of merge all these patients based on their the findings from their sleep studies, but the reality is we need to do better in our phenotypic understanding of, of sleep disorder breathing. And I think what research needs to really now focus on is to find out which patients are in dire need of treatment, which patients in fact could we could sit tight on, um, which patients are going to be responsive to treatment and what type of treatment, uh, which patients are at risk for untreated disease. And, and there are a, a vast array of phenotypical variations that we see when we see patients with sleep apnea that remain um, poorly understood. And I'm hoping that in the next five to 10 years, the next time a patient walks into our clinic, they have their sleep study done, but we actually also have a better sense both from their, from their, from their genome, but also from their phenotype in terms of what risk that that patient poses if they um, do decide to treat and how best to treat them. Najib and Rakesh, many thanks for doing this. To the listener, to read the article discussed in this podcast, please visit, visit the podcast homepage at www.atsjournals.org. To listen to more episodes of Out of the Blue, visit our page on iTunes or Google Play. You can also subscribe to stay updated whenever new episodes are available. Thanks for listening and have a good day. Thank you.